What's up, everybody? Ron Placone here. Screenings for my film are happening. My movie, Left at Wall, is finished, and it's coming out this year. We're getting it out there. February 22nd, you can see it in Tucson, Arizona, having a screening in Tucson. February 29th, Omaha, Nebraska. March 20th, Washington, D.C., and that's a free screening, by the way. March 22nd, there's going to be a show and screening. In other words, I'm going to be there. That's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. March 22nd, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, comedy show and a screening. April 14th, Los Angeles, California, show and a screening. We'll be announcing the full lineup on that soon, but there's going to be a show and a screening of the film at Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank. Get your tickets now, romplacone.com, for tickets and more information on all those events. Episode 17, Ronan Taylor. Do you know what biospheric restoration is? Basically, we have the ability to develop forests at a very rapid rate. Such an effort could help us mitigate climate change. Ronan Taylor is an in-the-field activist who has worked in numerous fields within natural sciences and organizations including the Smithsonian Institution and TED. He explains biospheric restoration and other climate-related concepts in an easy-to-understand manner. Though at times in this interview, you'll find me doing my best to keep up. Also, it's a shame I feel the need to give this disclaimer, but given the hyper-hostile online times we're living in, this conversation is not an endorsement of one method or solution as being superior to any other one, and this conversation is for entertainment purposes only. All right, now buckle in. This is an info-packed episode. Please welcome to the show, Ronan Taylor. So, Ronan Taylor, thanks for joining me. Good to see you again, my friend. No, it's great being here. Very excited about this. So, let's start with you a little bit. So, so what is your educational background? What is your title now? Like, like what exactly? Uh, what are you doing? Well, I guess they'd call myself a naturalist. My background is very eclectic. Um, You know, it's been everything from studying spiders at the Smithsonian to working with large reptiles to, uh, you know, studying human ecosystem impacts throughout history. And now I'm growing trees. So, you know, my background is quite diverse. And as a result, I just kind of like this umbrella title of naturalist. So where, where did you go to school at? Like, what is your degree in? Uh, my degree is in uh, biology, just kind of general. I'm really only working with the bachelor's right now. Oh, okay. All right. So, so you're you're more like an in the field guy. I am only in the field. If there's one thing I do not enjoy, it is academia. I think people in sure. academia get far too comfortable. They get far too specialized. And when you're in academia, not only do you kind of like. I think lose connection with a lot of the world um, kind of in an ivory tower sense. But I also think that you lose a sense of the bigger picture. A lot of academia really encourages you to get as specialized as possible and become an expert in kind of like that one specific thing. And I think, as I mentioned before, you lose sight of the big picture, which when you're studying the natural world is not a good thing because in in nature, everything is so intimately connected and there's just so much of it that losing sight of that bigger picture is ultimately going to be detrimental to whatever research you're doing. 
Sure. Uh, so, well, let's get into the organization then. What is Biospheric Restoration Systems? Tell me about the organization, the history of it, and and what exactly it does. And uh, I, I know you don't have a problem doing this, but uh, but just a small disclaimer: explain it in layman's terms. Okay, can do. So, Biospheric Restoration Systems. We're a very new organization, and we attempting to develop new technologically driven methods of environmental restoration. A lot of people in environmental restoration tend to be somewhat Luddite-ish. You know, they tend to kind of be technophobic almost. Um, And I think, once again, that's the detriment of the work itself. Um, Right now, our flagship project is what's called the Green Phoenix Project, where we're attempting to use hydroponics technology to scale up the Miyawaki method of reforestation. Um, and the reason we're doing this is essentially, oh, well, hold go, on. Let, yeah. me, let, let me jump in. Like, like what is <laughs> that? I mean, what is the Mio? Uh, sorry. I, yes. Say it again. <laughs> the Miyawaki so, reforestation. <laughs> I've read this on your website, but, but it's like, what is this? Um, you know, and also I wasn't sure how to pronounce it and I probably just butchered it, but, but yeah, like, so, so what is that exactly? So the Miyawaki method is, in some respects, the most powerful in reforestation method ever developed. It is capable of growing forests that are indistinguishable from ones untouched by human activity in as little as a decade. Normally, that process would take centuries. And it works through kind of a few different factors. The first is you have to look at what's called potential natural vegetation. Um, and that whole concept is basically what does a community of plants look like in a certain area without human interference. And determining that can be quite challenging. Um, You know, we're doing our test right now in Scotland. So we've been having to study kind of human impacts throughout Scottish history and the different ways humans can alter kind of a plant um, community's composition is really amazing. Like for example, um, hazel um, appeared to be like very common throughout Scotland. But what we found is the reason hazel was so common is because people ate here 8,000 years ago loved the seeds so much that they were deliberately planting them everywhere. And that species became way more common directly as a result of human activity. I mean, that's the thing. You walk through a forest, odds are it's been heavily modified by human activity. It doesn't even matter like how remote or wild it seems. I've even been to like parts of the Amazon rainforest where it's like, you know, looks completely wild, looks like no one's been there for thousands of years. But when you actually get down to the different plants that are there, like Brazil nut, you have a similar thing with um, hazelnuts. People throughout the Amazon deliberately planted Brazil nuts everywhere. And as a result, Brazil nuts are like now the most common species in that entire rainforest. So pretty much everywhere you go, you are looking at a heavily modified ecosystem. So what the first step with the Milwaukee method is, is kind of just taking a look back and seeing, okay, what changes have we made to this environment? taking that into account. And then basically you're designing the entire refor- the entire forest on a spreadsheet where the amount of like a certain species is, you're planting is going to be, you know, kind of reflected on a percentage um, of what you're planting in that area. So basically you do an analysis of the area and you kind of assess, okay, these are the types of things that will make growth flourish in the best way possible and then you make it happen, and that will allow it to happen a lot quicker than it would be if you just kind of let it do whatever it's going to do on its own. 
Basically, yeah, we're just looking at like what species existed and what numbers prior to human intervention in that environment. So, you know, we're looking at like what this forest essentially would have looked like 10,000 years ago. In the case of Scotland, that means we're basically like dredging up old bits of bog and looking at microscopic pollen samples that have been preserved in that bog for thousands of years and looking at what trees were there and in what numbers. Um, so that's really the so, first so step. So you is, can okay, do that. You can do that with like a deep enough soil sample. Oh yeah, it's crazy. That's some crazy. of the things you can do. Oh, that's not even like the craziest thing you can do. Um, did you hear about like what happened in Greenland like, recently? Cool, crazy. Oh yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Um, and that's the thing. And this is actually there's even newer technologies that we're going to try to incorporate in kind of future plantings to get a better idea of what these kinds of areas looked like before humans showed up. There's a new tool called sedimentary DNA surveys. Um, you know, any living thing in an environment, what can happen is, you know, whether you're shedding your skin, leaves, uh, really, you're leaving traces of your DNA everywhere you go. And pretty much every organism does this. So what happens is you can take soil samples that are thousands and thousands of years old where the DNA is still preserved and you can see what was living in that environment at the time just by looking at these ancient DNA samples contained within the soil. That's incredible. I, I mean, that's just, wow. Okay. So, so that's basically what biospheric restoration is shooting to do. Like, like let's find out the natural ecosystem and let's, you know, make it happen again before humans were messing around here. So then we're basically going to get the forest back more or less. And we yeah, all know how the helpful whole trees are. Yeah. Well, that's our whole philosophy is basically how do we, I, we need to identify what damage we've done to the planet because, you know, the damage we've been doing to the planet did not begin with the industrial revolution. We've been leaving an impact on the planet for millennia. I mean, basically, since we've left Africa, we've completely transformed any environment we've gone into. Um, so really what we're attempting to do is identify the various um, consequences of our actions throughout the millennia and undo them. Because at the end of the day, a natural environment is far better at sequestering carbon than anything else. Like identifying what this ecosystem looked like before human interference and replicating that is going to suck out more carbon than anything else we have right now. So it's interesting, you know, you mentioned some some people in this space are, are a bit technophobic. When I just sort of look at the issue of climate change and, and, and talk to different perspectives in that space, I feel like there's always kind of two... I don't want to say extremes, but but kind of like two camps where I feel like there should be more of an intersection. And it's like on one end, you have people who are really addressing the need for us to change our lives. Um, and I think they're 100% right. We need to get off of fossil fuels completely. Um, we need to really revisit our supply chain, our food chain, and it's capitalism that's causing all the problems with this. Um, you know, I'm all for those things, but then they take it to a place where they, they basically make it sound like we're just going to live like Amish people. Um, and, and I think that's not only unrealistic, but there's also no, there, there's no reason why that has to be the case, I, I think. And then you have the other end of that, which is the complete other end where they're just like, oh, screw it. Let's just like not even worry about it because eventually technology is going to bail us out. And I think both of those, uh, and I know like I'm kind of painting a caricature here, 
But I think both of those are are incorrect when taken to the extreme. And, and the reality is everything has a seat at the table. Technology is going to play a role, but it can't just be technology. We're going to have to change our lifestyles, but but it's not going to just be that. And it's not like we're going to live by candlelight. And, you know, we also like, like there's just all of these factors kind of have a point. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, that's when I say people become too specialized. That's exactly what you're describing right there. Um, mm-hmm. I think there is this complete lack of an interdisciplinary approach to the climate crisis, um, which is incredibly frustrating because this is an issue that ties into like everything. You know, pretty much if you name an issue, climate change ties into it somehow. Um And what's very frustrating about that is, you know, especially the viewpoint I find most frustrating is technology is just going to bail us out. Like, that's not reality. You know, like I said, my background is, you know, studying ecosystems and the climates of the past. Um, And this is actually not the first time fossil fuels actually were combusted and led to climate change. If you look back about 250 million years ago, when Pangea first came together, It caused, you know, a lot of new volcanoes formed as a result of the continental uh, drift. Every single one of these continents gliding together created a ton of volcanoes. And this led to big magma fields. And that magma seeped into the crust and ignited coal deposits. And it's absolutely terrifying to think about because the resulting climate change um, that happened as a result of this combustion killed about 90% of life on Earth. It nearly was the end of multicellular life on Earth. And right now we are replicating those conditions, but about 200 times faster. The reality is it's like going carbon neutral by 2050. That That's not going to be sufficient. We are living on borrowed time right now. I mean, we've already released enough greenhouse gases in the atmosphere to pretty much guarantee the apocalypse. Um, if you look at what's happening recently in the North Atlantic, I don't know if you've been seeing, but we're having just these record temperatures just coming out of nowhere. And the reason for that is, is because there's this thing called the aerosol masking effect where, you know, aerosols are sort of the opposite of greenhouse gases, where what they do is they reflect sunlight into the um, back into space as opposed to kind of absorbing the uh, thermal radiation from them. And what happens is, is even though, you know, these um, molecules and everything um, can reflect sunlight and everything, they really only last for about a week or so. And there's a certain irony to this because all of our industrial activity is releasing these molecules in conjunction with carbon. Now, keep in mind that carbon also lasts millennia in the atmosphere, not just a few weeks. So what happens is when these aerosols dissipate, you know, they just get replaced by further industrial activity. And what's happened recently is there were new regulations for a lot of like shipping lanes and everything to switch to a certain fuel, new fuel. And this new fuel did not produce aerosols. So just out of nowhere, the northern Atlantic has just shot up. And the temperature um, change this year has been so extreme, they've literally had to increase the height of the graph like by a pretty big margin. So right now, like I said, there's a certain dark irony to this where it's like pretty much all these different molecules releasing in the atmosphere along as a result of like fossil fuels combusting or as a result of like, you know, various industrial activities, not only they're releasing greenhouse gases, but they're slowly kind of producing a certain inertia that's slowing this process down ever so slightly, but they can't last forever. That's the thing. Like I said, we're on borrowed time because just that slight reduction in aerosols led to a massive spike in temperatures in the Northern Atlantic. So 
what would your and, and I know some of this is is you're you're trying to anticipate just just like everybody is to an extent, but what would your ideal solution look like to prevent complete climate catastrophe? Well, so this is why I'm a huge advocate of what's called carbon negativity. Um, right now, governments are following a policy of carbon neutrality, where it's like they're trying to take out as much carbon as they're releasing by a certain year. And like I said, we've already put enough carbon in the atmosphere to basically guarantee the end of civilization as we know it. Um, so really what we need to be doing is not just stop emitting in a relatively short time frame, like really... 2050, forget it. We need to be talking like 2035 by the time we're like not emitting. Um, but also we need to be taking the carbon out of the atmosphere as much as possible in conjunction with this reduction. Um, this is why I actually started this organization because, you know, if we, that's what I'm doing with the Green Phoenix Project. If we can grow old growth forest on a large scale really fast, we can take out insane amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere and cool the planet. There's actually a historical basis for this. Um, you know, if you look at what happened when, you know, the Europeans first introduced diseases into North America during the 1400s, um, you know, urban centers and farmland and everything became abandoned in mass. And an area roughly the size of France was uh, kind of reforested just over the course of 80 years. And this actually had a cooling effect on the entire planet. Just that area the size of France getting reforested. So if we can do large scale environmental restoration, I absolutely am confident that we can take enough carbon out of the atmosphere to avert this. That's uh, yeah. I mean, that's incredible. Um, so what would it take for, for that to happen? I, I mean, what would it take as far as your organization is concerned? What kind of cooperation from governments would need to happen? I, I mean, this would be, and, and this is, I think, and I'm probably really preaching to the choir here, but but this is one of the things that does frustrate me about the climate catastrophe is that there's a certain amount of top-bottom solution that you kind of need here. You, you kind of need the people with all the money and the power to to have the political will to end the fossil fuel industry and to start doing uh, reforestation. And, and so, so what would it take? I think it's going to take a number of things. Um, like you said, it is going to have to be top down. I mean, the reality is, look, yeah, communities around the world can, you know, engage in their own restoration projects and everything. But the reality is that's not going to be enough. Another thing I think it's going to take is a massive shift in the food system. I mean, right now we're using about like 70 percent of all the habitable land on Earth for some form of farming. Um, we could seriously reduce that number of people when vegan. Uh, for example, like, you know, most of the crops we're growing right now go to the cattle. They go to our livestock. We're growing food for our food. It's incredibly inefficient. So the first step is really just if you can get animal products out of your diet, do that. Um, the other thing is, you know, we also have technologies now like vertical farming, which are incredibly space efficient uh, methods of um, growing food. I have been inside a shipping container that was repurposed into a vertical farm and it was growing produce. And that shipping container was growing about three acres worth of produce every year. So there's some absolutely amazing ways that we could free up land for environmental restoration. And I absolutely think a shift in the food system is really going to be the big first step. 
The other thing I think is, you know, when we talk about a Green New Deal, one thing I find very kind of frustrating about that whole discourse is, you know, really seems to be entirely focused on, you know, the United States when really that should be a global initiative. I mean, the entire the thing is, like, nature is so interdependent. Um, it doesn't know our borders. Um, like, you know, deforestation in the Amazon is actually one of the main causes of the uh, drought we're seeing in California. So speaking of that, you are um, American, but your your organization. Sort of. OK, well, I mean, I was we, born we, in London. Oh, you were. OK, well, so I, I was going to ask what you spent time in the States, right? Yeah, well, most of my life, the accent didn't give it away. Okay. Yeah, no, no. Well, I was just curious, how did you wind up doing this initiative in Scotland? Um, Well, Scotland is taking environmental restoration a lot more seriously than other countries. Um, Why do you think that? Relatively. Um, it's just a more progressive country as a whole. I mean, that's the thing. People there are, you know, far more enlightened on a whole variety of subjects than I'd say most countries I've been to. And there's a very proud tradition of kind of things like workers' rights and that kind of thing. In fact, the term heckling comes from Dundee, where I am right now. Heckling? Heckling, yeah. Well, well explain that. What, what, what do you mean? What's the history um, well, there were a lot of um, I, I'm not an expert on this, but my understanding is that, you know, generally, whenever people were like shouting down the foreman at the jute mills here and everything, and whenever there was some kind of like strike that involved that, that's what they would call it heckling. And that's where the term originates from. Interesting. Well, I mean, as a comedian, I when I hear the word heckling, I, I think of something. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that. Scotland, yeah, I just think as a whole is a much more progressive country. And I think that's actually kind of um, a lot of the fuel behind um, a lot of the independence movement here is that really like England and Scotland are really not aligned in this kind of more demand for progressive policy. Now, when I say Scotland's good with environmental restoration, I do say that relatively like it's not great. I mean, in terms of like the standards of what we actually need to be doing, it's not great. But in terms of the bigger, in terms of just comparing it to other countries, it's really quite something. World leader. Um, Costa Rica, I'd say, is another one. Bhutan. Bhutan is actually the only country that has officially adopted carbon negativity as a national policy. So, I mean, shout out to them. What about some of the Nordic countries? I mean, when you see some of like the energy efficient things that are going on in Denmark... Uh, are, are those some other good examples, would you say? Um, in some respects, yes, and in some respects, no. Some of the projects, especially with a lot of the dams, are having incredibly detrimental effects to a lot of the rivers and various other environmental factors, um, which is not ideal. The reality is also if we're going to combat climate change, like I said, we need to enable natural systems to flourish. And when you put a dam in a river, you're basically just cutting that river in half and you're blocking the flow of organisms between it. And those organisms redistribute nutrients across the entire landscape. And you kind of reduce the whole functionality of the ecosystem when you do that, because those nutrients eventually just become other things. And when you block that, you basically, like I said, you reduce the whole functionality of that entire ecosystem. So, what about, I mean, you 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 brought up the food chain, which is something I spend a lot of time uh, pondering as well. 
Um, what about things like, um, and, and I don't know a ton about this, but but the like the slow food movement and stuff like that. We're basically speaking more general ways to really localize our food supplies to to the best of our ability. I I'm somewhat skeptical of a lot of it. Um, you know, the first one is kind of um, regenerative grazing, um, which is kind of the ideal that we can bring in cattle to replace the roles of large animals in an ecosystem um, and in turn use that to suck up carbon. Um, there is a large institute called the Savory Institute that's really kind of spearheading this movement. And the Savory Institute um, has published loads and loads of papers showing here's how we graze the cat, raise the cattle in a specific way to suck a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere but no one outside the Savory Institute has been able to replicate the results. In fact, um, you know, they have been implicated in a lot of frauds when it comes to um, removing carbon. And on top of that, the Savory Institute has backing from like, you know, various ranching associations, McDonald's, not exactly the most trustworthy oh, people. Yeah, I don't um, I, I don't think that's what I. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't think that was that's not what I was. I, I meant more oh, like just. Yeah, I think I was speaking a little more broadly, but 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 this is that that's very interesting. I, I'm not familiar with that. I, I meant more just broadly speaking. You know, you see that meme online where they show you just a, a fruit cup that was grown oh, yeah. in Indonesia, packaged in you know India or something, and then sent to the United States, and and it just makes or it was grown in South America, packaged somewhere else, like like you know, like, like miles away and then sent to the, and it just makes no sense at all. And it, it's just not sustainable. Um, you know, the whole idea of just eating locally, you know, like, like local produce, local, you know, even just on a smaller scale, community gardens and, and stuff like that, but having that be a greater part of our diet. Yeah, I mean, that has to happen. And I think that's an inevitability. I mean, we've been seeing over the summer so many disasters, heat waves, floods, you name it, that are direct result of the climate crisis. And that is only going to increase in the next few years. And that's already having a huge impact on agriculture as a whole. Our sort of international interdependence in the food system is going to fall apart. Um, similar thing you saw happen with the breakout of the Ukraine war. I mean, all of a sudden, just the grain shipments coming out of Ukraine just stopped coming. And now all of a sudden, millions of people are threatened with famine. We have become too interdependent in other countries. We absolutely have to go local. And that's also one thing that I love about vertical farming is that is a great way to do that. Because with vertical farming, since it's all indoors, you have total control of the climate and you can just keep producing fresh produce even in the middle of winter. It's an absolutely amazing technology. So, you know, getting back to just a reforestation, is there any discussion anywhere in the world about a worldwide effort at reforestation? Um, I mean, there's multiple networks that are attempting to to kind of create um, sort of international coalitions focused around reforestation. Um I don't know how particularly useful as a whole that would be. I think really what should happen is there should be, I mean, there's the UN has the uh, decade of environmental restoration, um, but those targets are just not being met right now. 
what I think would be most useful is really kind of, and this um, Lula is trying to do this, is create a multinational coalition to restore the Amazon or to save the Amazon. Because right now, the Amazon is in a pretty bad state. It's going through something called a dieback. And what a dieback is, is essentially the Amazon rainforest itself was formed under very different climactic conditions than today, many millions of years ago. And that region of the world was experiencing regular rainfall. But weather patterns shifted and all of a sudden the rainforest had to learn to generate its own rainfall. So what happens is, is every time that like, you know, wind comes in from the ocean, bringing in moisture, that moisture condenses into clouds and then it rains the roots of the plants will take in that rain. And then after they do their, their bodies do their stuff with that, they have these little organs all across their leaves called stomata. And they slowly release that water as a gas out of that stomata. And that creates negative pressure, which in turn brings in more water from whatever nearby uh, body of water exists. And this in turn, when you take that effect and put it across an entire continent, you essentially just generate this river in the atmosphere where all of a sudden rain gets dumped, then the plants release that moisture through their leaves and then attract more water to the area. And then the whole thing just cycles across the entire continent. The problem is we've now cut down enough of the Amazon to completely disrupt this process. So what's happening is, you know, certain areas start to dry and then fires break out. And, you know, this is an ecosystem that's not in any way adapted for fire. So once a fire gets in there, it just destroys everything. And those regions are then gone. So other parts of the forest all of a sudden start experiencing less rain. They dry and then they get set on fire. And now we're sort of in this big chain reaction that's going to basically turn the Amazon into a desert unless we restore the, re, re, unless we restore the forests that have already been destroyed. So would you say, so, so basically getting more big picture reforestation efforts should focus on places specifically to start out and the Amazon's a great place to start. I mean, I think reforestation efforts should just focus on the simple fact of if there's a place that can be reforested, it should be because like I said, forests are brilliant at taking out carbon. And right now we just got to get as much out of that, out of the atmosphere as possible. And to go back to this kind of river in the sky that the Amazon is generating, you know, that has global implications. Um, Trade winds, Hadley cells, and various other atmospheric processes will redistribute that water, those rainfall it's generating, to other parts of the world, including like California and Canada. So as I mentioned before, deforestation in the Amazon is actually like having a huge impact on the fires in North America. If we don't take action... What do you think the world is going to look like in, say, 20, 30 years? Um, chaos. Absolute chaos. Um, I think what is going to happen is pretty much every government in um, a region of the world that is considered hot is going to fall apart. I think if you want an idea of what the world's going to look like 20 years from now, if we don't fix anything, I think the best idea of what that's going to look like is the Syrian refugee crisis, because that was caused by climate change. The Arab Spring that triggered that whole process was caused by a human-induced uh, heat wave that led to crop failures, and in turn, people just fleeing the region, heading to urban areas, fights breaking out. 
And, you know, that had global impacts as well. I mean, that was a huge factor in the right the right wing um, kind of shift we're seeing in Europe right now. That sort of xenophobia from that um, influx of migrants from Syria. So what I would expect in about um, 20 years is, um, yeah, just millions and millions of people fleeing from, you know, hotter regions of the world and um, seeing a massive rightward shift in governments as a result. If we do take action, what do you think it could look like in 20, 30 years? I think the world would be an amazing place. I mean, the reality is in order to combat climate change, we have to restructure so many different parts of our lives. Um, For example, like economic growth, GDP, this is something we can't continue. We cannot decouple energy consumption from GDP, Um, which means basically as long as we keep GDP going, we cannot get off fossil fuels. So Really, we'd have to restructure the economy in a way that, um, you know, helps people, you know, it improves people's well-being. Um, You know, we'd have to implement social programs like, you know, we do see in the Nordic countries, which I do think are world leading examples. Um, So I think right there, you know, we'd have economies that are where the objective of the economy is no longer growth, but rather human happiness. Um, which right there, I think is absolutely wonderful. I think the world would be much more full of nature. Um, I mean, you know, the amount of things we could, the amount of areas we could restore, it would just be amazing. I mean, imagine intact Amazon rainforest, whales everywhere, seagrass beds restored, all of this. Imagine just basically being able to like walk out of a city and the next thing you know, you're in the wilderness. That's what it would look like. And that's the kind of level of restoration that needs to be done. That kind of, and I'm not saying like, like this is a total example, but, but that sort of makes me think of Vancouver, British Columbia a little bit where it's like, like, Oh, it's, I mean, it's not like a total example of, of what you're describing, but there's just tons. I mean, it's it's a city, and, and it's and it's a very wonderful city. I like Vancouver a lot. Um, but there's just this amazing rainforest all around it, and you can like hike one of the most beautiful suspension bridges I've ever seen, and then be you know in a city center having lunch in in the same day. Uh, and it's um you know when you see places like that, and I'm I'm not saying like you know, Canada's leading the way in anything or anything like that. It's, it's just a naturally beautiful place. And, and it looks like they, you know, make some effort to preserve it. Um, you know, you, you kind of think, man, we, we got to do better than this. We got to do better. We, cause like, look at this, this is worth fighting for. This is worth saving, you know? Um, but uh, so how optimistic are you? Uh, I'm not <laughs> in short. I, I mean, I'm looking at what I'm seeing right now. So, you know, when I was saying that Scotland relative to other nations is doing well um, in terms of restoration, all things considered, they're still not doing that great. Uh, For example, reintroduction of wolves is right now off the table. The political situation in Scotland is not great for the reintroduction of wolves, which that's another thing that needs to happen. Um, I mean, if you're looking at like, um, there's this thing called chronic wasting disease, um, which is, it's sort of like mad cow disease, but for deer, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, what mad cow is or. Yeah, no, I remember when we had, we've had a couple outbreaks of it. I, I'm not, I mean, you, you'll have to explain a little bit the connection to wolves, uh, to me. Oh, I'm, I'm, but... I'm getting to that. I just want to make okay. sure the, yeah, the yeah. groundwork okay. is set there. 
So chronic wasting disease is sort of like, yeah, mad deer or something. And what it is, it is kind of a wasting disease, a prion disease. It's a protein that gets introduced to your body and then gives different instructions to a bunch of other proteins in your body. And as a result, like, you know, it basically causes your fundamental biological systems to malfunction. And what's happening is it's now spreading amongst deer population like crazy. It's pretty much in every deer population in the United States. Um, just got to Europe. It's still very early stages there. But what's really scary is, first off, we don't know what the mechanism of transmission is. We, we don't know how the hell it's getting between these deer. But it's now moving to other species. So human to human, human transmission is something that is entirely possible. In fact, I've spoken to doctors in Pennsylvania who think they actually found a few cases, but weren't able to successfully diagnose it um, from hunters who ate venison. And the way the wolves factor into this is that, you know, when the wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone, they had a whole ton of impacts on it. But one of the things they did was they came in and essentially like, by scaring deer and causing deer to avoid certain popular certain areas because the deer knew they'd be hunting, they essentially enforced social distancing between the deer populations. And as a result, basically like the spread was like slowing down. And on top of that, what they do is, you know, um, individual deer with this disease, what they can do is, you know, they're so much easier to hunt because they're all disoriented and zombie like. So the wolves come in and take these deer down and eat them. And unlike other mammals, wolves are immune to this. So their stomachs actually break down the protein as opposed to like it destroying their body. So the way the wolves come into this is essentially they are our best preventative measure against this disease from actually like spreading amongst us. So we need to eat local, get some wolves, reforest, (laughs) and then we got a shot. Oh, I mean, that's that's just one thing. Like I said, this is uh, insanely complicated. Uh, another thing is we need woolly mammoths back, for example. I don't okay. know if you're familiar with that whole kind of thing. Um, you, you would you know need to walk me through is? that, too. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm I mean, happy to. I'm happy. Any, to. any species you name, I'm going to need a little hand-holding. It's like, yeah, I know what it is, but uh, but but how does this connect to the bigger picture? <laughs> I understand, and yeah, I mean, this I'm, is I'm what I'm saying. Be, I'm, this is what this interview. I, I'm going to be a big hit at parties from here on out. I mean, ne- next time I'm at a social event, I'm going to be like, you know, why we need wolves? They're going to be like, what? I'm like, wolves. Let me tell you about it. If there's if there's well, something know, that we real if if there's something we really need bats for, you need to tell me right away because I, I love bats. Oh so, no, we uh, we absolutely need bats too. Um, great. Bats are amazing insect control. They dramatically yes. reduce mosquito numbers. And reduced bat populations are linked to increased malaria cases. Okay, so I did know that actually. I uh, yeah, I mean, I oh, yeah, uh, hey, yeah. Now, well, now that you yeah. repeat it, I, I I did I I have heard that. Um, all right, so woolly mammoths. How do we? What what are they? Yeah, so do? this is part of my background. Is you know, when we left Africa, we essentially destroyed all sorts of populations of species. The thing to note is that a lot of the world used to look like Africa. Like you're in California, right? Yes. So California, you would have also had mammoths there. You would have had saber-toothed tigers. You would have had armadillos the size of cars, and these animals would have been alive today had humans not entered that ecosystem thousands of years ago. Now, I'm sure you're probably thinking like, oh, this all happened thousands of years ago. How's that relevant to today? But what we got to understand is nature does not operate on our timescales. You know, 80 years, you know, the human lifespan, that is a blink of an eye. 
Um, in fact, our entire existence as a species is relatively a blink of an eye. Life on Earth has been around for three and a half billion years, and anatomically, modern humans have only been around for 300,000. But anyways, so we leave Africa, and the reason Africa is the only place that still looks like Africa is because all these animals there co-evolved alongside us. They knew what we were capable of. But these other animals, never seen a human before in their life. They were very easy for us to take down. And, you know, when you're talking about something like an elephant or a woolly mammoth, these things, you know, their pregnancies were, you know, over 18 months. You know, it takes a very long time for that population to replenish. So the animal gets overhunted very easily. And unfortunately for us, these animals had very important parts in kind of these biogeophysical processes, as they're called. The woolly mammoths, in layman's terms, were essential for preserving the permafrost. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm, vaguely, very vaguely. So the permafrost is essentially a layer of dirt that is supposed to stay frozen year round. And mm. there is a ton of carbon, a ton of methane, ton of just nasty stuff frozen in it. And us heating the planet has begun to cause the permafrost to thaw. And if the permafrost thaws a certain amount, it's basically guaranteeing the whole thing to melt. And it's going to, at minimum, release about three times the carbon we have in our atmosphere right now. And like I said, we have enough carbon in the atmosphere right now to basically just end everything. So it's like, this cannot melt. Now, the way woolly mammoths factored into this is um, snow can act as insulation. This is how an igloo can keep people warm. And you had the woolly mammoths, you had giant hairy rhinos, giant hairy deer, all these animals clearing snow during the winter to get at the vegetation underneath. So not only do they clear the snow, but they ensure the permafrost would stay exposed to the frigid Siberian winter. And that would ensure the permafrost stayed frozen. Now mm. that they're gone, the snow just builds up over the entire winter and then the snow melts and all the permafrost gets exposed to is the rapidly increasing summer temperatures. So without the woolly mammoths, this whole thing is beginning to thaw and collapse and it's just belching out large amounts of greenhouse gases. I mean, you can see footage of like certain areas in Siberia where it's like the entire earth looks like bouncy castles because all the ground beneath it has like unfrozen and there's just a ton of gas just waiting to come out. So, wow. All right. So, so this list keeps getting <laughs> Ronan, this list keeps growing and I feel like we're going to need a few more people to help out here. I, I mean, I, I can, I'll spearhead the woolly mammoths. I volunteer for that, but, uh, but <laughs> we're going to need at least five or six more people on this task force. I feel like, um, so where can people go to a learn more about the work you're doing? Um, and just kind of learn more in general. And, and again, I know we're talking, there's so much of this is a top bottom solution, but what is the best way an individual can help to the best of their ability? Well, like I said, switching to a vegan diet, I think is the single most important thing anyone can do. Um, because the reality is, look, as individuals, we do not have much power over this. But that, I think, really is the one thing. If enough people did this, it would make a big impact. Because if the cash to the meat and dairy industry just stops flowing, it stops flowing. And the whole thing just breaks. Um, so on an individual level, I think that's the most important thing someone could be doing. Um, I'm also an ardent supporter of organizations like Just Stop Oil or Extinction Rebellion. I think 
that form of protest is proving to be quite effective. I mean, the fact that, you know, the UK is considering to like pass anti-protesting measures is really a testament to that. So if you feel up for it, I highly recommend supporting the work of organizations like that. So, and that was Extinction Rebellion and Stop Fossil Fuels? Uh, just Stop Oil. Um, stop Oil. You probably okay. know them. I mean, yeah, they I know caused a lot of fuss. Do, do you remember the um, that painting that like got like the tomato soup thrown at it? Yes. Was that Stop Oil or was that Extinction Rebellion? Yeah, that was uh, that was just Stop Oil. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. I didn't know. Yeah. I, I guess I thought it was kind of all under the Extinction Rebellion umbrella, but but gotcha. So, uh, well, and, and then what is the uh, give everyone the website for your organization? Yeah, so we are biospheric I know, real nice and small, easy to remember. Um, <laughs> um, everyone just calls us BRS for short, though. Um, BRS. Unfortunately, that domain name. Yeah, unfortunately, that domain domain name was not available. So we're stuck with biospheric You can find us there. Learn all about our work. Um, we can t- learn more about the Green Phoenix Project, which unfortunately I was. Only able to describe step one there. But, uh, you know, there's so much more to that. Um, We're also developing a new oyster bed restoration method. Um, We're trying to develop new ways to grow seagrass beds. There's a lot we're trying to do here. For me, the ultimate goal of this organization is to produce a standardized de-extinction method um, to help bring animals like the woolly mammoths back into existence so they can return to the ecosystems they once inhabited and play the important function they did. And what would it take? I mean, I mean, kind of just give me like a very brief cliff notes. Like, what would it take to to do that? Like, like what would it take to get those species back? Well, I mean, in some respects, it's a lot easier than people would assume. The DNA these creatures um, left behind exists in abundance. Um, and, you know, we have been able to, like, retrieve DNA samples that are millions of years old. And, you know, these creatures only died out, what, 10,000 years ago. So that's absolutely nothing. Um, but the rest really is a matter of, um, advancements in synthetic biology. Um, you know, there's all sorts of absolutely amazing technologies where we're just going to be able to like produce entirely new life forms, um, just from like synthesized DNA. In fact, it's already been done. People have, there have been labs that have produced like entirely new organisms, things that never existed on the tree of life before, um, just out of, you know, bits of protein and, um, uh, reprogram DNA and everything. So I, it's really just a matter of um, technologies that already exist advancing a bit more. Yeah. I mean, throughout this whole conversation, you know, and I know you said, Oh, I'm not super optimistic and, and, I, and I believe me, I totally get that. But, but, you know, talking to you, it, it just seems like it, it reconfirms that we have the resources, we have the technology, we have the the knowledge we just need the political will and we need yes. governments around the world to cooperate yeah and that that is the challenge and i really see it going one of two ways where it is because things are going to get worse i don't see how we're going to avoid things getting a lot worse at this point but 
does those things getting worse force governments into action? Does it force that systemic change? Because right now, I think our political system is far too rigid to make the big changes we need to make. I mean, just look, you know, we couldn't even like get Sanders to like pass the primary for God's sakes. Like, you know, and same thing happened with Jeremy Corbyn in the UK. Like the political power is just too established at this point, but can enough of a systemic breakdown trigger the changes needed? Or is that systemic breakdown just going to be a systemic breakdown and everything falls apart? That's really where I'm not sure. Here's hoping it's the former. Uh, Ronan, thank you so much for joining <laughs> me. Uh, this, was a, this was a very interesting conversation, and, and I'm really uh, – I am very much in admiration of your work, and, and I hope that it, it continues to oh, – to, to spread on a, on a massive scale and, and please let me know anything I can do to help. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Of course. I was happy to be here. It was great talking to you, man. All right. That was Ronan Taylor. Check out his website. Again, that's biospheric to learn more about everything he's talking about. Biospheric Say that five times fast. Music for the 1000 podcast is provided by Andrew Saxena. Be sure to check out his podcast, the Baywatching podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I said podcast a lot in that sentence. Give us a five-star review, would you? This is still a very new show. A five-star review, a positive review helps us out a lot. And if you want to support this show on the sustainability end, you can do so over at patreon.com slash romplacone. For a give-what-you-can level, you get all kinds of perks. You get exclusive stand-up content not available anywhere else. You get early access to all of my films and shorts. And you get a bonus podcast between myself and Andrew Saxena. And that's all for a give-what-you-can level. It's a really cool community. We're a little bit lower than where I'd like to be right now, which is very typical when you start something new. So please, if you got an extra dollar a month, please join over at patreon.com slash romplacone. If things are really tight right now, which I totally get, you can actually follow the Patreon for free. So it doesn't cost any money, but you get all of my stuff in one place. Like a lot of a lot of my stuff is for all members because I just post everything that I put online anyway. So even if you don't have anything to spare right now, please join the Patreon at a free level. But if you do have something to spare, uh, every little bit helps keep this show sustainable. All right, we're getting closer to 20. We're getting closer to that nice round number. So so we got another round number coming up really soon. Happy New Year once again. See you next week. Hey guys, Ron Placone here. Take your own 1,000 challenge. No, you don't need to interview 1,000 people, although if you want to do that, go for it. Your 1,000 challenge can be whatever you want. Maybe you want to call a friend out of the blue once a week. Maybe you want to read a book every month. Maybe you want to start a different garden every season. I guess that might be dependent on where you live. Look, the point of the challenge is taking on an endeavor that enriches your life in some way, and it can be measured. And then, of course, you do it regularly. That's what 1,000 is doing for me and hopefully for you, too. The main reason for this podcast and every podcast I've ever done is to build community. So take your own challenge. Then join our Facebook group. It's called 1,000 What's Your Challenge? Question mark. That's 1,000 What's Your Challenge? Question mark. And post about what your 1,000 challenge is and the progress you're making. All I ask is that people be encouraging of each other's challenges. This is personal and vulnerable, so be cool. There's enough negativity on social media. We don't need to add to it. 
For those of you who aren't on Facebook, hopefully in the future we'll be expanding to places like Discord, Reddit. But for now, we're starting on Facebook. And again, that Facebook group is called 1000 What's Your Challenge? See you there.